0: Unfortunately, the sermon wasn't recorded on Sunday, and so I'm going to re-record it. If I make a joke and you don't hear anyone laugh, uh, don't worry. That's just how people usually respond to my jokes anyways. We are beginning our year by sketching out a spirituality for the long haul uh, that we're calling Faithful Presence. And the gist of it is this. When we see that God is present in all things and we faithfully present ourselves to him, that is the start of a spirituality that can last through the highs and the lows of life and the lifelong pursuit of Jesus. Last week, we worked our way through uh, the first chapter of Thessalonians, and we began considering the foundation for a long-haul spirituality, and it starts with knowing who we are in Christ, being gripped and convinced through and through of the reality that God loves us, that God has chosen us, that God delights in us and wants joy for us. So, if you want to have uh, a spirituality for the long haul, if you want to be a faithful presence in this city, step one, know who you are in Christ. It's fundamental. We have to rework this knowledge in our hearts and minds over and over again and ask the Spirit to convince us through and through. Uh, This week, we're moving into the second chapter of 1 Thessalonians, and Paul further develops what he began in chapter one. uh, When we understand who Jesus is and who we are in him, it changes us. It gives birth to a a faith that works, faithfulness, uh, to a love that labors, a hope that is steady. And Paul digs into this more because he is convinced that when we are gripped by God, we'll want to please God and we'll begin to live lives worthy of the gospel. Uh, In chapter one, Paul's focused on the Thessalonians' faith. And in chapter two, he's more personal. He talks about his own faith and his own response to the gospel. So here's the big idea I want to explore. When we recognize the gift of the gospel for what it really is, it changes how we relate to each other, and we become a people of integrity and a family of deep affection. The scripture reading is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Uh, when a family or friend comes to visit from out of town or when a loved one gets home and you go to the airport and pick them up, uh, what's usually one of the first questions you ask? How is your trip? Oh, you know, not bad, made my connections. The last flight got in late around midnight, and then uh, we boarded the plane, but then we had to deboard the plane because there was too much fuel, and then we had to get back on, and there was some turbulence, but, you know, we're safe here now. Uh, That was my trip from Florida. Thanks for asking, but I digress. Uh, Paul begins chapter 2 by reminding the Thessalonians of how his trip on the way to Thessalonica was. And as we talked about last week, things weren't smooth for Paul in many of the cities he went to. Uh, A few cities before Thessalonica, he went to Philippi. And there, uh, his team faced conflict and they were imprisoned and then forced to leave the city when they were freed. Uh, And yet, this didn't hamper Paul's willingness to declare the gospel yet again. You see, Paul, he has this spirituality for a long haul. His faith endures in highs and lows in freedom and imprisonment. He's able to press on even when things aren't easy. How does he do that? How did Paul muster up such boldness to deliver the gospel time and time again in conflict after conflict? After all, things were hard in Thessalonica too. And many of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we can't quite imagine what this would be like. Uh, Colin and I have been uh, making up some millennial uh, lament psalms. Here's one. Oh Lord, how many are my foes? How many tweets rise up against me? Why do the wicked get so many likes and the righteous none? Most of us can relate uh, to these sort of struggles in our day-to-day life, but facing life endangering riots and imprisonment, we might have given up if faced with what Paul was facing. So how does he do it? Well, Paul explains to us in verses 3 through 5, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. It appears Paul's uh, integrity had come into question, his character had come into question. He came, he caused a bit of a scene, and then he was gone. And so some are asking, what really motivated this guy? And we don't know if that's questions going on around the city or questions from within the church. Uh, It doesn't really matter. But in, in response, Paul appeals to his integrity. But he doesn't appeal to some inherent integrity or character. Paul doesn't say, I'm a good person, trust me, just trust me. Paul appeals to how he has lived in response to Christ. And this isn't just an interior life that he's appealing to, but a public life. People can see his good example. He no longer lives to please himself, but aims solely to live a life worthy of the gospel. And so his integrity, and this is important, his integrity is found in Christ, not in himself. That's why no error, no impurity, no attempts to deceive have come from him. No false words of flattery, no pretext for greed, no self-image building. What he believed wasn't just stuck in his mind, but sank down into his heart and poured out in everything he did. And if he, did, if he didn't do that, if he acted in the ways he just described, he's convinced he wouldn't be living a life worthy of the love and joy of Jesus. He wouldn't be honoring what he received. Look again at verse 4. Paul says, we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. That is what really motivates Paul. I love my grandfather. And the few memories I have of my early char- childhood are mostly with him. Uh, his face would just beam when he saw me. And his company was always uh, warm. You know, he, he would say, you know, I run hot. And his hands were strong. And he was a carpenter. And so he always built things for me, uh, you know, swords and shields, uh, much to my mother's disapproval. He empowered me as an adventurer. And and most of all, I just remember that in his presence, I felt invincible because I knew he loved me. And my grandfather, he died from lung cancer when I was seven. And months later, I inherited all of his carpentry tools. And it was an unbelievably generous gift to me. I had no skill, no ability, uh, not even... a remote desire to be a carpenter or get into woodworking as a hobby. Uh, And there were other people in my family who made their opinion known uh, that would have benefited from this gift much more. But my grandfather entrusted these tools to me. He approved me, of all people, as unworthy as I was to be their keeper. My inheritance, has taught me something significant about my grandfather uh, that even 30 years later, When I think of him, I know the depth of his love because the riches of his inheritance. Paul says he's been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. It's immeasurable. It's an immeasurable gift beyond any comparison to the tools of carpentry. Paul, Paul of all people, has been approved to receive it. Paul knew that the gift that he received was disproportionate to his worthiness. He expresses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9. I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. And again in Ephesians 3.8, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ the least worthy, a persecutor of the church who violently oppressed anybody that one by the name of Christians, who tore families apart, who approved their imprisonment and even sometimes death, the least worthy of all the saints, not just the apostles. And yet God approved Paul of all people and entrusted him with the message that he was seeking to destroy. Paul was given the gospel, which he calls the unsearchable riches of Christ. I love that description. The unsearchable riches of Christ. You cannot explore its depth or height or breadth. It is limitless. There's no edges, no boundaries. It can only be explored forever. And Paul was entrusted with this gospel, this good news about God's love for us all in Christ. Well, what was the result? A brand new motivator for Paul's integrity. Essentially, he's saying to the Thessalonians, when you understand what you've received in Christ, it changes you. It changes the way you live. And he's he's not content with this being lodged in our minds. He gives us a concrete example of that change. He goes on to say that he's cast all people pleasing aside. Look once more at verse 4. So we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. If Paul had been a people pleaser. The conflicts in Philippi and Thessalonica would have crushed him. A people pleaser can't handle that much disapproval, their life being on the line, imprisonment being dangled before their face. They would compromise. They would twist the gospel to make it more acceptable, to make them more acceptable. So let's take a minute then and talk about this because Paul is saying that when the gospel comes into our lives, we can't anxiously please everybody. We want to please God. So let's talk about people-pleasing. How do you know if you're a people-pleaser? Well, did you just think, what answer would make you happy, Alistair? You're probably a people-pleaser. But in all seriousness, all of us, to some degree, varying degrees, are people-pleasers. Christine Carter is a sociologist and happiness expert, which is pretty cool, uh, at Berkeley Greater Good Science Center. And she's written extensively about living happier lives, but also about the negative impact of people-pleasing. And here's something she wrote. I've spent the better part of my life as a people-pleaser, trying to meet other people's expectations, trying to keep everyone happy and liking me. People-pleasing, in my extensive personal experience, is a process of guessing what other people want or what will make them think favorably of us, then acting accordingly it's an often subtle and usually unconscious attempt at manipulating other people's perceptions of us. She goes on, And anytime time we're doing something that is more about influencing what others think of us than about authentically expressing ourselves, even something as simple as a Facebook post that makes it seem like we're having a better day than we actually are, we end up out of integrity with ourselves. When we're people pleasing, we end up out of integrity with ourselves. If the common culture within the con- common wisdom within our culture can conclude that people pleasing means we're not living with integrity, how much more then should the people of God live with integrity and abandon people pleasing? Reconsider once more the words Paul used to describe a life of people pleasing: error, impurity, deception words of flattery, a pretext of greed, seeking glory from people. If this is the life of people-pleasing, and if common wisdom can even tell us it's foolish, why are we so prone to it? Because I can guarantee many of us are going to continue trying to please people after this sermon. As Christine Carter suggests, people-pleasing is an identity issue. And this brings us back to last week's message. If we don't know who we are in Christ if we don't rework that identity into our minds and pray for the Spirit to give us the full conviction of it in the center of our being, if we don't know who we are in Christ, we'll always be people-pleasing. Our identity won't be secure. We'll be looking to things outside of ourselves to find our identity. Now, (coughs) most people-pleasers try to find self-worth in trying to please others. And their sense of contentment in life, their joy, depends on how well they perceive themselves as being accepted. But if our identity and self-worth is based on acceptance from others and how well we perform, we're all going to be in trouble. We'll be in a perpetual state of crisis. People's opinions of us will shift. Our performance will fluctuate. And so our sense of acceptance will never be established. It'll never be stable if it depends on others, if it depends on what we can do. Now, the positive psychology movement, which I've just quoted from, uh, tells us to overcome people pleasing this way. Work on your self-worth. Accept yourself. Be authentic to who you are. Then you'll be okay. Now, there's some good here, but if you're anything like me, you're your own worst critic. Being told to accept myself is the equivalent of being told to lick my elbow. I am not disposed to such actions. And if I'm completely authentic to who I am... I'm far more broken. And a lot of people don't want to hear this inner monologue. Paul offers us a much better way of finding self-worth. It is the good news of Jesus Christ that undoes our people pleasing. Because God loves us and chose us and delights in us. He's made us acceptable in his sight through Christ. He's made us worthy of his presence. In a sense, you could say God is pleased in us because he is pleased with his son. So you can rest secure because nothing, absolutely nothing, can rob you of the acceptance God offers you in Christ Jesus. He can, Nothing can take away the love God has shown to us in Christ. And this is why Paul is not the least bit concerned about people-pleasing or success or failure in her, human terms. Because his acceptance in Christ is unwavering. Of course, Paul wants to see the gospel re- received, but he's more concerned about living in a way that is pleasing to God. Now, sometimes people can take this idea, I want to live a life pleasing to God, and they use that to justify uh, steamrolling everyone in the process. Oh, I'm just doing what's right in God's sight. Uh, but they miss the second part of this verse. God who tests our hearts. Paul wants to please God because he knows God tests the heart, the, the interior motive. You know, a lot of us think we're good people because we have a good filter. But if we lost our filter, if everything that crossed our mind, every judgment, every uh, superiority, uh, every uh, secret, if God saw all of that, it's alarming. It's alarming. One of the best theologians of the past century, John Stott, puts it this way. This is a disconcerting fact because God scrutinizes our hearts and their secrets, and his standards are very high. On the other hand, it's marvelously liberating. Since God is a more knowledgeable, impartial, and merciful judge than any human being, to be accountable to him is to be delivered from the tyranny of human criticism. Paul gets this. He would rather be accountable to God than to human criticism, because he knows, however his heart may fail, that God will accept him because of Christ. He knows, no matter how much he struggles, he can never outrun God's mercy and grace. And so he seeks to please God. Because that's the only one worth pleasing because he's so gracious and merciful, full of compassion and slow to anger with us. Yet as I've been saying, this changes Paul, not just his salvation. He is saved through Christ, but also how he relates to others. He's become a person of deep integrity and affection in Christ. He he continues in verses 5 through 8. We're gentle among you. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, so being desirously affectionate of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Paul, the violent persecutor of the church, became gentle This is how we know the gospel changes us. He becomes so gentle, in fact, that he uses the metaphor of a nursing mother taking care of her children. Let that image sink in. It's an empowering image for women because there's a a gentle vulnerability in breastfeeding, but also a strength. And this conveys something about who God is. It reveals something about the image of God. And this is a countercultural image for men. Is your strength the gentle strength of breastfeeding? Do you have gentleness like Paul? Marnie Jackson's first book, The Mother Zone, is an acclaimed Canadian bestseller, and it's a memoir on motherhood, which I've obviously read from front to back. And she says something that I think helps us here. Marnie writes, Breastfeeding is an unsentimental metaphor for how love works. You don't decide how much and how deeply to love. You respond to the beloved, and you give with joy exactly as much as they need. It's this deep and intimate giving of one's own resources. Paul not only proclaimed the gospel, but he shared himself. He shared his life. He became gentle, pouring out his love and joy of Christ. You see, the gospel isn't just transferring of theology, although what we believe about God is significant and matters. But it's the uniting of our lives in Christ, our uniting of our souls with God and with one another. So seeking to please God doesn't disconnect Paul from other people, but it actually frees him to a radically new way of sharing himself. If his primary motivation isn't seeking someone's approval, then he's actually free to truly love them and offer himself to them without any demands made. Paul continues to develop this train of thought in verses 9 through 12. He writes, For you remember, brothers and sisters, our labor and our toil... We worked night and day uh, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You're our witnesses, and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. God calls you into his own kingdom and glory. God has opened up the gates wide. He's opened up his home. He's opened up his heart. And as a result, he's welcomed us into his family. Pull together the images Paul's used. Nursing mothers, brothers and sisters, fathers and children. Nursing mothers, brothers and sisters, fathers and children. We're a family of deep affection. And so Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of God, worthy of such a great gift. What does he mean? He doesn't mean that we deserve what God's given to us. We're not worthy in that respect. But since God has entrusted an unworthy people with the profound gift of the gospel, the profound death and resurrection of Jesus, we should walk in a manner worthy of what we've received. And our worthiness now, it doesn't earn us salvation. We're already saved. We're responding to what we've been given, the immeasurable searches, uh, riches of Christ. Part of walking in a way that's worthy of the gospel is listening to our spiritual mothers and fathers in faith. We need Christ-like leaders who exhibit this gentle strength that Paul's talking about. We need uh, fathers in the faith who exhort and encourage us in maturity. And while we need leaders, all of our leaders need these people too. And Paul levels the playing field. He says we're all brothers and sisters ultimately. We need each other to encourage one another, to support one another, to help us grow in Christ-likeness. Our mutual aim, our one goal, our focus, when we gather with our brothers and sisters in any context, should become more and more like Jesus in every single part of our lives. So if you meet together, whether you're grabbing a coffee or a lunch or going out for dinner, whether you're having people over to watch a movie or going to a movie, whatever it is you're doing with someone who believes in Jesus, take the time Five minutes even to encourage one another in Christ. Be intentional about asking them, How's your pursuit of Jesus going? What are you learning about God? Where are you struggling? How can I encourage you? Paul's arguing this is fundamental to a long haul spirituality. Only together with our mothers and fathers in the faith, our brothers and sisters, Can we begin to live lives that actually look more like Christ? That we begin to love like Jesus loved, to offer ourselves like Jesus offered himself. And we need our new family so we can press into them. The Thessalonians know this. They faced affliction. The world is pressing down against them. They need one another, and so do we. But is this just idealism? Are we painting a picture of a family uh, that in reality is just way too dysfunctional to ever uh, stay unified amidst affliction and suffering? There's a French film called Of Gods and Men, and it's based upon the true story of the monks of Tiburine. It got 92% on Rotten Tomatoes, so you should go and watch it. The film depicts the life of eight Trappist monks at Our Lady of the Atlas Monastery in Algeria. And they lived during Algeria's horrific civil war in the 1990s. And what makes the movie so good is that it dives into this interior struggle of the monks in the face of terrible violence, violence which threatened their lives. The question they face is, do we stay or do we go? And they deal with this question as a family, and they're not in unison unison about it. But in their wrestling, they're ultimately trying to figure out what it means to be an example of Christ and what it means to be a witness of Christ in a predominantly Muslim neighborhood. Ultimately, the monks as individuals and as a family decide to stay because they remember that love is eternal hope and that love endures all, even affliction and suffering, especially for the sake of their neighbors. Now, ultimately, they were kidnapped and beheaded and killed. And the last uh, testament of one of the monks, Christian Desage, was later discovered. Here's what he wrote. If it should happen one day that I become a victim of the terrorism, which now seems ready to encompass all the foreigners living in Algeria, I would like my community, my church, which includes us, my family, to remember that my life was given to God and to this country. I ask them to accept the one master of all life, And to remember that he was not a stranger to this brutal departure. And I asked them to pray for me, for how could I be found worthy of such an offering? How could I be found worthy of such an offering? These monks ultimately decided to walk away worthy of God because they understood what they had received. That Christ offered a sacrificial love and it filled them. And it gave them the strength To be a family even in the face of horrific suffering. Is Paul talking about idealism? No. He's talking about a pattern of living that's possible. A pattern of living that he's embodied, that the Thessalonians have embodied, that we've seen again throughout history. So how do you get there? Because in our comfortable lives, where we face no suffering like we've just described, it sounds like an ideal. Well, look at verse 13. We thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. And it's at work in you believers. The message of the gospel, which Paul also calls the word of God, it's not human fabrication. It's not just another religion among religions. It's not just a nice set of ideas. It is God's declaration to the world. Paul's clear. When he brought this message to the Thessalonians, it was not the word of men, but the word of God. He's saying, this came from God's lips, not my own. The message, the gospel, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's a historical reality of God speaking loudly and clearly to us. God has opened up the gates wide. He wants to bring us home. He wants to make us his family through the mediating death of Christ. Christ has dealt with everything that's orphaned us. Our own uh, rebellion against God, the sin which separates us, the fracturing of human relationships. Christ died to mediate and reconcile so that we can live as a family of deep affection because we're God's family. And when you receive the message about Jesus for what it is, the word of God, it takes hold of you. Look at what Paul says in verse 13. It's at work in you believers. The radical change in Paul's life, if we tried to pursue that on our own, you know, abandoning selfish ways of living, abandoning people pleasing, you know, proclaiming the gospel no matter what comes our way, living with integrity through and through, relating to other people in sacrificial ways and loving them without condition. If we tried to do that on our own, we would burn out. You know, the radical change we saw in the, the lives of the monks of the Tiberine, It's only possible. It's only possible in the Thessalonians. It's only possible in Paul. It's only only possible in us. Because the word which they received is at work in them and with them. You see, when you receive the message of the gospel, that Christ came into the world and he died to save you, when you receive that message for what it really is, the word of God, completely trustworthy and true, The Spirit of God dwells in you. That's the promise of Christ. The Spirit of God works in you and with you. So is it idealism? No, it's even better. It's just a small glimpse of what's to come when Christ returns. So if you want a spirituality for the long haul, here's what you got to do. Know who you are in Christ and recognize what you've received as the Word of God. And then take a deep breath, because sustaining your faith for the long haul doesn't solely depend upon you, but on Christ who dwells in you and works with you. Amen.